Father, we do thank you so much that we can gather on this campus. And I want to recognize on the front end, as you know full well, more than any of us could know, that we are approaching you, approaching your word this evening, coming from lots of different places. Uh, Some of us are here as committed followers of Jesus. Some of us are here exploring the claims of the Bible. Some of us are here having had a really encouraging start to the semester. Some of us are feeling torn down and discouraged and confused and disoriented. But God, our hope is that we all really have one need in common. We need to hear from you and we need to see Jesus. So I pray that you would send us your Holy Spirit now so that we could do that and that we could be changed because of it. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. What do you want out of your college years? What do you hope will be true at the end of your college experience? For some of you, that is like three months from now. You're graduating in December. For others of you, you're just getting started, and this is like four years down the line. But think about it for a moment. What do you hope you will have accomplished by the end of this season? What do you hope you will have experienced, you will have enjoyed? I bet if I pause and we actually took a moment to like take a poll of the room, we would hear some recurring answers to that question. I'm sure there would be differences, but we, we would see themes as we gave our honest functional answers to that question. What do you want out of college? We might hear some of you saying something like, I want to work really hard and then I want to land my dream job after, or I, I want to get into my dream grad school. Others of you might say something like, I want these years to be years that I look back on decades down the line and I'll know for sure that I lived life to its full, that I made like lifetime friends during this season. Some of you, your honest answer might be something like, honestly, I'm just trying to escape from the hard past that I'm coming from and this is an opportunity for me to discover who I am in a new place with new people. No matter what your answer is to that question, it's an important one to ask, especially if you're on the front end of college, but even for those of you that are on your way out. But I want to put before you tonight that I don't think your honest functional answers to those questions involve inherently evil or wicked desires, at least most of them. I think a lot of them are probably natural things to want, even desires for some of God's good gifts, things like meaningful work, uh, connection with others, a sense of community, really good things from God. And yet, I think the 20th century author C.S. Lewis, if you've never heard of him, come back and I'll keep quoting him in future large groups. Uh, He hit it on the nose, when he said that our Lord does not find our desires too strong, but he actually finds them too weak. He said something like this. He said, we fool about with drink and sex and ambition, like little children that are playing in mud pies in the slums when a holiday at the sea is being offered to us. And he he ends that paragraph by saying, that our desires are not too strong, but too weak. We are far too easily pleased. So tonight, for the next half hour or so, we're really going to be answering three questions 
in light of these two verses at the outset of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're going to answer the question, who is Paul? Helpful context, I hope. We're going to answer the question, who are we? And then last, what is the gospel? But as we answer these three relatively straightforward questions, my hope, my goal for this evening is that we would be enabled to see that the things we ordinarily desire in our lives, they might not be bad, but they're insufficient. And God, the God of the Bible, the God who made you and loves you, he actually invites you to something much more full and much more beautiful than the things we are ordinarily pursuing in our lives. So let's start with that first question, who is Paul? Now, I want to mention that these opening verses, if I'm being totally honest, I could be tempted to approach them and have my eyes kind of glaze over. They almost seem like some kind of perfunctory greeting before we get to the real meat of this letter, the real message that Paul is trying to convey. If you feel that now, or you felt that before when reading, reading openings to letters in the New Testament, you're not alone and you're not silly for feeling that way, but we would be wrong to approach these words with that mindset. Paul is following a custom when he opens the letter this way. In our day and age, when we write letters, or much more likely emails, we sign them with our names at the end, right? I might say, love Ethan, or sincerely Ethan at the end of an email. But in Paul's day and age, you say who it is that's writing on the front end. So he's following custom here, but he's not merely following custom. He's explaining to his audience who he is, and that's actually really important I wanna show us together this evening for us, even in the 21st century. So after Paul tells this audience, these believers in Ephesus, a important city in Asia Minor in the Greco-Roman world, modern-day Turkey, after he tells them his name, that he's Paul, he goes on to say that he is an apostle. And my hunch is that that is a word that many of you have heard before, but maybe would struggle to articulate what it means. And some of you, maybe that's the first time you've ever heard that word being used. What in the world is an apostle? An apostle, I could put it like this, is to the New Testament what a prophet was to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God conveyed his word to his people through people that he set apart called prophets. That's how we got the Old Testament scriptures. And in the New Testament, because Jesus loves his people, because he's wise and cares for the church after he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, truly, bodily, historically, it's not just a myth, it really happened. After that, he established this group of men to represent his authority on the earth for this foundation-laying period in the life of God's people. So what does that mean when we come to these opening words that might seem like just a perfunctory greeting? It means that we ought to approach these words with the same sense of reverence, the same sense of honor, the same sense of desiring to really understand them as we would the words of Jesus himself, especially those of you that identify as Christians in the room. This is a weighty thing that we're considering. But big picture, what does that mean for us? It means that Paul, who is he? He's a big deal. He's one of the most important leaders in the history of the church, one of the most powerful proponents of Christianity in the history of the world. But some of you might know, if you've ever read the New Testament book of Acts, 
that Paul was not always an apostle. That actually he wasn't always named Paul. That there was a previous season in his life when he was known by the name Saul. And during that season, it wasn't just that Paul wasn't an apostle, this special leader representing God's authority on the earth for this time period. He wasn't just not an apostle. He wasn't even a Christian. And he wasn't even just not a Christian. He was actually someone who spent an extended period of his life actively persecuting God's people. He would have seen little children pulled from the arms of their parents. We know that he hunted down Christians from town to town to have them arrested because of their faith in Christ. We know that he oversaw and approved of the brutal executions of people that identified with Jesus. We would not be stretching the case if we said that in modern terms, Paul, in his former life when he was Saul, was a terrorist. He was a man who used violence and oppression and power to push down the weak, to rob them of their dignity and freedom. So if that's true, if that's part of Paul's story, we need to ask the question, how did Paul the terrorist become Paul the apostle? And if we had more time, we could trace that story through the pages of the New Testament. That would be an interesting thing to do. But here's the short answer for tonight. How did Paul the terrorist become Paul the apostle? The answer is that he met Jesus. He encountered the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, and it changed the trajectory of his life. It transformed him from the inside out so that a man who was once a wicked opponent of God and his people became a friend of God and, and a herald of this good news about Jesus that we're going to focus on more in a moment. What does that mean for you tonight sitting in this room? What does it mean for your family? What does it mean for your friends? This is something that we love to repeat again and again in RUF. There is no one who is so good to be beyond the need of God's grace. Every one of us needs God's grace, his favor, his forgiveness. And this is what Paul shows us. There is no one who is so bad to be beyond the reach of God's grace. It's one thing to hear that and to maybe even agree with that, that there's no one who's beyond the reach of God's grace. It's another thing to really believe that and let that sink home with you. Because some of you might be here tonight, and if you're honest, maybe you're four days into your college career, and there's already something that is plaguing you, some sense of guilt or shame or insufficiency. Maybe many of you wouldn't write yourself off as a lost cause full stop, but there might be a part of your life that you've begun to give up hope on in some way. There's some struggle, some area that feels like it's untouchable, that no matter what you try, you can't get over it. And Jesus sounds cool, like there's a lot of interesting stuff here, that's why I'm at this large group, but I don't know if he can actually make a difference to this part of my life. Others of you might have people that you really love, your family, close friends, that seem to be running as fast as they can away from God. And as much as you pray for them, as much as you seek to talk to them about God and the things of God, 
it seems like there's no interest at all and maybe you've begun to give up hope that God can do anything about it. We all need to be reminded, no matter where we're at, that there is no one who is so bad and there's no part of your life that is so messy that it is beyond the reach of God's grace. And Paul the terrorist who became the apostle, he shows us, he proves us that that is true. So that's who Paul is. Now I want to turn and we're going to start answering our next question. Who are we? I've already indicated that I expect in a room this size that some of you are here identifying as followers of Jesus. Some of you are still exploring who God is, who Jesus claims to be in in the Bible, in the pages of the New Testament. No matter where you're at on that spectrum, we're really, really glad that you're here. I need to say that on the front end because what I'm about to say might be a little offensive if you misunderstand me. So let, let me get to that in a moment. When Paul's writing this letter, he's writing to a particular audience in mind. He's writing to people that individually we could call Christians and collectively we could call the church. So when we're asking this question, who are we? I want us to be thinking about it in two ways. For those of you that identify as Christians who have faith in Jesus, you are a follower of Christ as imperfect as you are. We can come to these words, these short words at the opening of this letter as a reminder of who God says we are, which is actually a lot more important than what we think about ourselves and a lot more important than what the world says about us. What really matters is who God says you are. So we're going to look at that. But if you're here and you're exploring the claims of the Bible, this still matters for you. I want you to listen in. This is still a message for you to consider because it's helping you to see what is it that I'm being invited into? What is it that I'm being invited to consider? So Here's our second question. Who are we? What is the church? What does it mean to be a member of the people of God? Well, Paul uses two key words or two key phrases in this short section that help us to answer that question. First, he writes to these Christians, these believers, and he calls them saints. Saints. That's probably a word you've heard before, but there can be a lot of misconceptions around it in our culture. What does it mean to be a saint? A saint in the Bible is not like an extra super holy person. It's not like the Navy SEALs of religion. It's not the people that can perform miracles or have left a huge impact on society. It's just the word that the Bible uses for anyone who's identified with Jesus, anyone who has faith in him. It's the word that the Bible uses for any Christian. Another clue we get in the Bible that this can't mean someone who's like, stuffy or like on this higher spiritual plane than everyone else is the fact that in the old testament pots and vessels are described with the same terminology the word saint means holy one set apart one so what does it mean to be a saint it's not that your life is completely put together it's not that you have everything figured out it means someone that has been dedicated to god set apart from the world and for relationship with him. And fundamentally, that is something that God does on our behalf. He sets us apart in his love. We'll keep talking about that idea in future weeks. But flowing out of that, flowing out of the reality of what God has done for us in Jesus, that he has dedicated us to himself, all those who are in Christ who trust in him, is a experiential reality. That part of what it means to be a saint 
is to be someone who is different. Not different because you only listen to Christian music or wear Christian clothing, although you should all get some RUF merch at some point this semester. Not different because you're a part of some like Christian subculture that the rest of the world can't understand, but different because you look like and smell like and feel like Jesus. And I need to say uh, up from up front, and I include myself in this indictment, very often Christians do not look that different from the world around us. Divorce rates in the church are like marginally better than divorce rates in the society at large. I wish I could tell you that like sexual abuse scandals, power abuse scandals were limited to Hollywood and to Washington DC, but that would not be the case. It happens in the church too. Christians very often are not the different people that God calls us to be. So if you are a Christian here this evening, I'm not bringing this up to bash you or make make you feel bad. Actually, I have the opposite intention in mind. But we do need to ask the question, do our lives actually look different in the way that Jesus' life looked different? When Jesus was different from the world around him, it wasn't like a stiff arm that kept the messy people at bay. It was what drew the outcasts, drew the notorious sinners in his society to him. It was because he was different that they felt so loved and seen and welcomed. We are called as God's people to be different. That's part of what it means to be a saint. And I wonder what it would look like on this campus if we as RUF, I know many of you are still checking us out, but what if we as a community became a place where we could be growing into those kinds of people together? That would make a difference on this campus. Well, the second word or the second phrase that Paul uses to describe Christians is this phrase, faithful in Christ Jesus. And as soon as we hear that word faithful, we're liable to misunderstanding yet again, because you might think of synonyms for faithful. You might think of something like reliable or obedient or trustworthy. And those are good words. I hope that those are words that will describe us in increasing measure over time. But I don't think that's actually what Paul has in mind here when he's describing God's people as faithful in Christ Jesus. Because fundamentally, for you to be faithful means for you to have faith, for you to have belief, trust, confidence, not just in some vague reality or some idea that everything is going to work itself out in the end, but a particular faith, a particular trust and confidence in Jesus Christ. The message at the heart of the Bible is not about what you do. It's not about what you can do for God, even if those are good things like going to church and reading the Bible and serving the poor and and the list is long. The message at the heart of the Bible is about what God has done for you in Jesus. And that's what it means to have faith, to look not to your own performance, but to the performance of one who is perfect. We all have our moral failings. I would be the first one to admit that. Jesus was perfect in our place and we can look to him. And it's actually that deeper reality of trust and dependence on Christ that leads us to be the kinds of people that can actually live different lives. 
Well, that brings us to our last question. We've seen who is Paul, the terrorist turned apostle, showing us that God can reach any one of us in any part of our lives. We've seen who we are, saints, people that have faith in Jesus. If you're here as a Christian, that's how God describes you. Now, lastly, what is the gospel? What is the good news that is at the heart of the whole Bible? We've been talking about this already in different ways up to this point. But I want to draw our attention now to just two more words that help us to understand this message. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. That word grace shows up 12 times in this relatively short letter of Ephesians, and the word peace shows up eight times. You add that together, that's 20 times. I know y'all are smart college students. So you don't don't even have to keep reading Ephesians or coming back to these large groups, although I hope you'll do both of those things, to figure out that these words are important for the message of this book. And I'll tell you, these words are important for the message of the whole Bible. They help us to understand what it is that God really, really, really wants you to know about him and about his love even this evening. So let's start with that word grace. The word grace in the Bible means something like God's favor. Grace is a gift. And I think most of us understand what a gift is, right? A gift is something that you don't earn. Because if you earned it, then it wouldn't be a gift. It would be your wages. It would be something that you're due. But I think functionally, even though we get that much, many of us, even those of us that have been in the church for a long time and could maybe give like a pretty solid definition of grace, functionally, we have a view of grace and understanding of grace that is only half true. So I want to illustrate that with a hypothetical story. I want you to imagine for a moment a child on a grocery trip with his mother. It's a small child. He's still able to sit in the grocery cart. And while he's sitting in the grocery cart, his mom is doing the shopping. And he's not doing anything. He's just sitting there. He's just enjoying the ride, so to speak. And at the end of the trip, his mom comes to him with an ice cream cone and his mom offers him the ice cream cone and he receives the ice cream cone and he didn't do anything to deserve it. And we think that's grace. He didn't do anything to deserve it. And it was at cost to his mother. And yeah, that's true, but it's actually only half of the picture in the Bible. Grace in the Bible is more like this. There's a child on a grocery trip with his mother And he's sitting in the grocery cart, but instead of doing nothing, sitting there quietly, he's like knocking things off of the shelves. He's screaming his head off through the store. And at the end of the trip, he actually slaps his mom in the face. And then at the end, his mom comes to him in love and gentleness and tenderness and offers him an ice cream cone. I'm not necessarily recommending that as a parental strategy for what it's worth. But that is a clearer picture of what the Bible means by grace than the story before. The truth of the matter is that you and I deserve something from God. We do. We deserve his anger, his judgment. We deserve separation from him because we've sinned. We've rebelled. We've thrown off the yoke of being his creature 
We've wanted to live as if we're independent of him in all sorts of different ways. And because of that, because God's a good judge and a good lawgiver, we deserve his judgment. Grace is not just God's kindness and love and favor and forgiveness towards you in the absence of your deserving. It is all of those things in the presence of your active undeserving, your active demerit. And the amazing thing is God extends it to you anyways in Jesus. Anyone who would call upon his name will be saved. So now we need to move on to the word peace before we wrap up. But even before we get to this word peace, we need to think about the question, why are these two words put together? What is the relationship between grace and peace? Why is Paul putting them at the front end of this letter? Why is it so important for the message of the whole thing? Well, one 20th century preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, put it this way, and I think he hit the nail on the head when he said, grace is the beginning, peace is the end. We could also put it this way, grace is God's initiation in our lives. It's how he meets us right where we are, but peace is is the proof that God doesn't leave us where we are. Grace shows us that God loves us before we are lovely, but peace shows us that God is actually determined not only to love us, but to actually make us lovely in his timing. Grace is the beginning. Peace is the end. And yet again, we often have a pretty weak view of peace in our own day. We think of peace primarily in terms of like absence of conflict, absence of warfare and that's a good thing like we can pray for peace in ukraine but the biblical vision of peace is so much bigger than that it's fuller than that we actually sang about it earlier in one of our songs this is biblical idea of shalom and shalom touches every corner of our lives it touches every corner of this creation The biblical promise is that one day God's peace will fill the whole earth and we can look forward to that. But at the heart of this peace is an intimate relationship, an intimate communion with the God who loves us and made us for himself. So as we prepare to wrap up, I want to share with you one more hypothetical story. I'm stealing this from another pastor because I think it's really helpful as we're thinking about this beautiful vision of grace and peace in Paul's letter. I want you to imagine that some weekend later this semester, you are driving to downtown Chicago. Some of you are like, that sounds amazing. I'm going to see mom and dad. Some of you are like, I never want to go to downtown Chicago. But some of you are driving to downtown Chicago, and you're going there because some of your close friends have gotten you a reservation at this amazing restaurant. Like this is one of those places where you have to get a reservation like a year in advance. It has a Michelin star. All the Google reviews are five stars. It's like this place is legit. If any of you are watching The Bear on Hulu, this like Carmi Berzato is the chef. I know that's going over a lot of your heads, but you'll get me eventually. It's a good show. This, this restaurant is, is amazing. And you, you've driven all this way. You show up to the restaurant one evening. And as soon as you walk in, the host is kind of giving you this side eye, like he's kind of confused about what's going on. And you're confused too. Like, why is this host greeting me this way? And you you walk up to the host station and the host says to you, first thing out of his mouth is, where is your jacket? 
Where's your blazer? Now, this is one of those restaurants that is so nice, so fancy, you have to have a certain attire even to be seated. And you've shown up without a jacket or without your beautiful dress. And he's getting ready to kick you out. But at the last moment, right before he's about to kick you out, the chef of the restaurant comes out. And he comes up to the front of the restaurant. And instead of asking the host to escort you out as quickly and quietly as possible, he takes off his jacket and he puts it on you. And after putting his jacket on you, which is kind of like your entrance ticket into this amazing restaurant, he doesn't just stop there, but he actually invites you to come and sit at his table, the chef's table. And he prepares you this elaborate 10 course meal that is somehow like perfectly curated to your every want and desire. And at the end of it all, he, he takes the bill. Uh, you don't have to pay anything. Now, I want you to imagine that at the end of the night, the chef asks you, what was your favorite part of the night? What was your favorite part of the evening? We would probably give different answers to that question. Maybe it was course three or course five or fill in the blank. But I think actually almost none of us would say, and rightly so, almost none of us would say, my favorite part of the evening was when you gave me the jacket. The jacket was a good gift. It was what got you into the restaurant. But the point, the end, the purpose of that gift was actually to bring you into a deeper joy so that you could sit at this chef's table and enjoy conversation with him and enjoy this amazing meal that he has provided. Friends, God's grace to you, we could even focus on the grace of what the Bible calls justification, this idea that Jesus came to take your sin and guilt and shame and to give you instead his perfect righteousness and obedience so you can have access to God. That is an amazing gift. And I encourage you to think about it every day, to reflect on it, to meditate on it. It's, it is an engine for growth in your Christian life. But it is not the point. The message of the Bible is not that trust in Jesus and you get a get out of hell free card. It is an invitation to experience a greater joy, a greater significance, a greater satisfaction than anything that the world can offer us. It's relationship with the God of the universe who made you and loves you and desires for you to come in and not just be in the restaurant, but to be seated at his table. As we close, I want to ask you again, uh, what do you want out of college? What are you hoping to achieve in these years? What are you hoping to experience or enjoy? My goal was not to disabuse you of any of those desires, but to invite all of us, whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time, to see that God in Jesus offers us so much more. Would you all please pray with me? God, we do thank you that you meet us in all of our needs in your son, Jesus. We thank you that you came to meet us right where we are, but you are also determined not to lead us there. We thank you that we don't have to do anything to come to your table, so to speak, to be in relationship with you, but we get the amazing privilege of knowing you as you speak to us in your word, as you've revealed yourself to us in Jesus. God, no matter where we're at tonight in our spiritual journey, whether we've been following you for years or are still asking big questions, 
would you speak to us now, even as we're reflecting on what we heard, so that we could receive your grace, maybe even for the first time, and that we would all be strengthened to be able to enjoy more and more the peace, the communion, the fellowship that you offer us that really is the most satisfying thing in the world. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.